I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett, and this is Writers on Writing. My guest today is novelist Erica Forensic. On the show, she talks about the thriller form, writing in first person, being a plotter, influences, and much more. Um, But before we bring her on, if you like what you hear and you find that you benefit from the authors we've been bringing to you for the last 20 some years, please consider visiting patreon.com forward slash writers on writing and contributing whatever you can. $5 a month, the cost of a coffee will help us out and make it possible for us to continue bringing great authors to you. And as a supporter, there are perks. There are writing prompts, tips, and extras. Now for our show featuring Erica Forensic. She's a graduate of the MFA program in creative writing at Boston University. Her work has appeared in Salon and the Boston Globe, as well as on NPR. She's also the author of The River at Night and Into the Jungle. Her new book is Girl in Ice, published by Scout Press, which is an imprint of Simon & Schuster. Let's bring her on. So, Erica, before we get started, I have to say we have a couple of things in common. One of them is um, one of them is your blue drink. I found you on Instagram and you have a blue drink. And for one of my stories, I have a blue martini. And so I want to hear about the blue drink. But the other thing we have in common is we both have Maine Coons. And I thought that was kind of interesting because I don't. I don't think I know anybody at the moment that has a Maine Coon. And I don't think I do. Just you. <laughs> and is and and he, and this guy I know this is a podcast, but he might make an appearance because he gets very jealous. Does yours get jealous of you? Yeah, he Stop. doesn't like he doesn't like the door to be closed. That's exactly right. Exactly right. <laughs> he really doesn't like it. So I gave up. I just all the doors are open at all times. Yeah, they're just open. Um, what about the blue drink? Tell me about the blue drink. So the blue drink. So I was approached by this lovely woman, Diane Sumstrom from her book club and her book club is called shit. I forgot to read the book book club. And, um, she wanted to do like this cocktail party in downtown Boston. I thought, Oh my God, that's so fun. I said, well, we should develop a signature cocktail, you know, like I thought I went through all these ideas. I'm like, oh no, I'll go on, on the internet and I'll buy a little tiny doll girls and I'll freeze them in ice cubes and I'll, and I'll, you know, put them in, you know, I was like, yeah, people will choke and die. That'd be awesome. Erica, great idea. Or just then I was like, okay, have blessed me a blue drink. So I, I got, I looked up all these disgusting drinks I don't know. No, no offense to people who like blue curacao, but it, it, I don't think it tastes that great anyway. So I was going through these drinks, frost, uh, frostbite, martini, uh, Jack Frost martini, just looking for a drink that would be simple and easy to hand out to 30 people, frankly. And, um, Anyway, so the, the organizer, uh, Diane Sundstrom, she came up with um, some drink with te- tequila that's blue and she's dealing with it, thank God, because I kind of, you know, a little too much experimenting on my end and not enough result. So that's a blue tequila? It's, it's, it's I don't know how she's making the drink blue, but um, I, I didn't quite read the all the ingredients, but it's, uh, maybe it's a, I'm sorry, maybe it's some, just a, some kind of margarita with, mm-hmm. with a blue element. Yeah. But that, that picture that you saw that is so pretty, I, I just grabbed that from the internet because I was like, that'll be what it looks like. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, blue drinks are kind of really refreshing looking, you know, um, yeah. apart from however they taste, but right. you know, it's just such a great color. And and it made me think of um, 
in relation to your book, it just made me think of like in Iceland, there's the blue lagoon and, and that, you know, icy blue is so kind of Arctic and, and um, yeah, it matched your book. That's what we were reaching for. That was, that was next Tuesday. If you're around. I want to, I want to hear more about this at the end. Maybe a few details would be great. Um, But yeah, so let's, let's talk about Girl in Ice and how did the book come about? How did the story come about? Do you remember sort of the inception of, of when you knew this was a project that uh, you had to write? Yeah, I well, Well, first of all, I guess I've always been madly in love with Arctic settings and I've always wanted to set a book in an Arctic setting. And, and, you know, I, I talk about how I, there was this, Oh God, there was this scene in Frankenstein in the earliest, one of the earliest renditions, maybe the 1931 black and white version where, uh, you know, Frankenstein's monster is, he's bloodied, he's hunted, he's at the end of his rope and he's saying, you know, screw it to humanity. And he's disappearing into this blizzard. And just that visual, I've just never forgotten it. And there's no Frankenstein in in Girl on Ice, but it's just that feeling um, I have always been kind of in love with. Um, and I love sort of closed door mysteries where you you don't know what's going to happen, but there's this, or you're in a this closed environment and, and you don't, and there is a, you know, a, a very threatening sort of setting and you can't escape. So I, I just I just fell in love with those things. But the actual spark uh, came in, in 2017, I was walking behind my house. I live in, uh, outside of Boston and, it was a winter day and I walked by this pond and there was, a, it was frozen solid. And I saw in the pond, there were three juvenile turtles and they were frozen solid. And they, they just like half, you know, half stroke, mid stroke. And I thought they don't look alive, but they don't look dead either. So I ran home and I Googled like, what can freeze and thaw out alive? And there turns out there are a number of creatures that can do that. Um, and, um, they, most of them, you know, alligators, some crocodiles can do it, various fish, certain turtles, obviously, but most of them possess a cryoprotein that we do not possess. And this cryoprotein protects the cells when they freeze. I mean, think about ice, ice becomes jagged. Um, and so if it were in your cell, it would break the cell and destroy the cell. Mm. But regardless, I came home, I had this vision of a, a girl in a glacier and she was, I could just see her foot from the side and she was, and she was running from something. And, and from there, I was just trying to figure out what her story was, uh, what she was running from and why and what had happened to her. So then I just went back and back and back to the story of the, of the linguist who was tasked to go there and find out. So let, let's go a little bit more into that in terms of you trying to figure out what the story is. I mean, are you, are you doing sort of any kind of writing about this? Are you doing a character biography? Are you, what are you doing to get to the point where you can start writing? Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm sure we both know, our, and, and probably many of your listeners know the concept of pantsers versus plotters, those who write from the seat of their pants versus plotters, one who plots, you know, and I'm a solid plotter. And, um, I don't want to say plotter, but I'm maybe a, I'm a plotting plotter. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm and I, I'm that way because of years and books of you know many books started and abandoned without a plot that you know either exists or is really well thought out. You know what I mean? Um, so I guess for this, I, I had this idea, and then I. I really thought, well, what, what, who are the people that are there? How could their lives, you know, resonate with each other, their journeys, their weaknesses, their desires? How are they in conflict? Um, you know, we all know conflict, conflict, conflict is the word to get your story going. And 
uh, and I just wanted to create um, in Val, who is the linguist, um, someone who, you know, an empathetic character. Should I just say in like three sentences what the book is about? Yeah. Okay, so why don't I do that? I'm just drinking okay. a little water here. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Girl in Ice is about uh, an American linguist named Val, who is tasked to go to a remote climate research station off the coast of Greenland, where a girl has been found in a glacier. The girl has thought out alive, speaking a language no one understands. Now, eight months before the story begins, Val's twin brother, Andy, who was a climate scientist out in this remote location, walks out one night, 50 degrees below zero, freezes to death. Val is shattered by disinformation, obviously. She doesn't know if her brother took his life or something happened up there that, you know, uh, a foul play of some kind. So the story begins when Val receives an email from Wyatt and Wyatt is one of the other researchers up there when this girl was found, writing to Val and saying, we found this girl in a glacier, we cut her out, she thought out alive. We don't know why, we can't explain it. She's speaking in a language we don't understand. You know, you're the, you're the specialist in dead Nordic languages or in Nordic languages, get up here and talk, try to talk to this girl. So, you know, Wyatt, the head researcher there, he's got his own agenda um, with the girl. And so Val, has her own issues. She's a pretty severe anxiety disorder. She's only comfortable in a few settings, her home and school where she teaches. So at first she doesn't want to go, but then in the email is a clip of the girl speaking and she plays it and she doesn't understand a world a word the girl is saying, but she hears fear and she hears this terrified kid and, and Val just, thinks to herself, well, for the first time in my life, I'm really gonna step out of my comfort zone and figure out what's going on. So that's why she agrees to go to Greenland and, and try to not only find out what happened really to her brother, but uh, understand who this girl is. Um, so that's, the, that's what the book is about. Hmm. I love the focus on language and that, um, that your narrator Val is a linguist and you know, and, and is so um, knowledgeable about this, these languages. Um, how did, how did that come about? How did um, she become a linguist? Well, I needed her to be a linguist. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, you know, uh, so then I was like, well, do I know any linguists? I guess I, you know, once, once again, I, I've got to do my research. I did go to Greenland for a month, I have to say. Um, but so <laughs> I thought I talked to some linguists and asked them all about it. And I also asked them, you know, what, what would it be like to speak to someone, you know, in this case, a seven-year-old girl and, and what it would be like, what would it be like to speak to someone and you really don't understand, there's no base in any modern language, any of the Scandinavian or, or, or Inuit languages that you recognize what, how, how in the world would you communicate? And, 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 all, and I heard back, well, it would be really hard, you know, you'd almost <laughs> like to, you know, it almost be like trying to talk to the way an infant would learn language, you know, we would show them an object and name the object and, you know, for our concepts, you know, like one versus many, throw some marbles out. So, you know, that's a concept of many and then one, one marble is one marble. And then, you know, so it's just like baby steps, but the most, Say, you know, the most, uh, the worst thing getting between Val and this girl is her fear and her terror and her fury. I mean, she wakes up in clothes she doesn't recognize with people who aren't her parents. And, you know, to do a little spoiler here, in a 
in, you know, she wakes up in a building and she's never seen a building before like this. Uh, so she, in order for me to communicate with you, Barbara, you and I need to want to communicate, right? Mm -hmm. So it wasn't until the girl trusts Farrell enough to, to speak to her, it wasn't until actually Sigrid, the girl realizes for her own survival, she has to speak to Val. Does she start to make herself be understood in any real way? So, so sorry, go ahead. No, that's okay. Well, I was going to say, so obviously then the story came first and you needed and Val needed to be a linguist because you needed a linguist in there. The linguist did not come first. <laughs> the the girl in ice with the unknown language came first. Yeah, the girl in ice with the unknown language came first. And then I thought, you know, I had to, she has to have a story. I mean, you know, who is she? Why is she there? And how could she possibly, you know, in the world I've created anyway, how could she possibly thaw out alive? Like what technology, quote unquote, would she have mm -hmm. that she could do that? Um, but I also wanted to make Sigrid, you know, the center of, you know, it, it, so, so, you know, Wyatt does not, did not have Sigrid's best intentions in, my, in mind, as you know. Um, so, you know, Sigrid, uh, to make herself understood, to give Wyatt the secret of, you know, how she could thaw out alive would have been really dangerous for her. And she was starting to understand that, I think, at some point in the book. But, um, I mean, I guess, I mean, it sounds like you're asking me, how did I come up with the story? <laughs> <laughs> and like, I don't know, it's some kind of... <laughs> mystical magical thing and then it's just uh it's very it's very hard because you you know one can come up with an idea but then you have to flesh out the characters and so on and so forth I basically when I write a book I I have to find an idea that I'm madly in love with do you know what I mean because when you write a book uh you are spending four or five years with it Mm -hmm. So it has to be an idea that you're really passionate about it because not only do you have to write it, then you have to go through the publishing process and then you have to talk about it mm -hmm. um, and you have to still love it, you know? Um, so it's really important that your idea is, you know, really workable and really something that you love. But yeah, um, it's, it's magic. It's hard. It's, it's heartbreaking. I have great days. I have terrible days. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, really hard. Yeah. Well, uh, were you thinking, I mean, do you think genre when you're writing? Because for me, Girl in Ice was part literary because the language was, was there. It was part literary. It was part thriller. It was part dystopian. It was part mystery. It was sort of a genre busting novel for me. And I don't know what you were thinking of when you were writing it, whether you were thinking genre at all, or you were just seeing how it spilled onto the page and would, would find out later where, where it goes on the shelf. Oh, it's such a good question. I mean, you know, I, like a lot of novelists, you know, I want to write the book that I wish exists but as far as I know, does not yet so far exist. Um, and in the process of doing that, I, I, I tend to forget, quote unquote, what genre. I mean, I'm supposed to be writing thrillers, whatever that means anymore. Um, but I, I do believe that I love certain elements of the thriller genre that I like to borrow from, but I feel like my books are, are have enough elements that, that, that they might be called thrillers. In the end, they sort of are what they are. As long as you want to turn the page, as long as you're riveted by the story, as long as you're, you know, wrapped up in it, 
um, that's enough thriller element for me. And also, you know, I think it's important to have an element of dread in that it's a very strong element of dread and also life and death situations and situations that build upon each other to become, uh, you know, really, really, really life and death. So that's how I feel. That's, that's my favorite definition of a thriller, <laughs> my own definition. Um, so um, I'm sure, you know, my publisher would rather I stuck more squarely into a thriller genre, but um, this is the best I, this is the best I can do with, with my talents, you know? Um, and, um, but yeah, I think it's, I think it's very difficult to shelve a book like this. Now, where are you going to put it? You're going to put it in mystery. You're going to put it in general fiction. I know it's being translated into, it's been translated into German. It's going to be published in German in September. And they're positioning the book at, in, they're putting it into general fiction, which I think is really interesting. Um, and I, I'm really curious as to that, how that's going to, you know, play out for them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, obviously. Um, because, you know, it's interesting, like, you, you know, you don't want to disappoint, you don't want to disappoint your thriller crowd, right? Um, but you also want to write the best book you can and in, in the ways that you can write. So um, it's, it's just an, it, literally, it's just an ongoing conversation that I think most writers today are engaging in, you know, this whole genre conversation. Um, but in it, and it's understandable because you know what you want to, it's like you go, you're buying an orange. You want to know it's an orange. You don't want to go home and think, oh, it's an apple. Oh, damn. Yeah. Yeah. So it's hard. It's hard. I get it. I get all the, the you know, ramifications and the, and the angles of, of these questions. I, I read it as a thriller, but I think what I especially um, why I was especially attracted to it was because of the attention to language that oh. um, thrillers don't always do. You know, I mean, sometimes it's it's more about plot, which is mm-hmm. important because for right. a thriller you want that. But I I don't always find myself as engaged because the language isn't isn't happening in the way that I needed to. And I think for this, for Girl and Ice, I loved the attention to language and it made me Thank wonder you. about your background in terms of writing and what else you've written. And do you have a poetry background and have <gasps> your literary fiction and, you know, all of that? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm pretty old, Barbara. So I mean, I have been around the block. I mean, I started writing when I, seriously writing when I was, I read, I've written all my life, but really started when I was on 26. And before that I was a painter, I was a fine artist. And I literally like woke up one day and said, I have no interest in paints and canvas anymore because mm-hmm. they're not expressing what I wanna express. Um, and so I went seriously into novels, wrote some terrible novels, uh, got a master's in creative writing, wrote another really bad one. Uh, I did. 10 years of stand-up comedy because it was like something I I'd always wanted to do and and I was I was good at it but it didn't satisfy this longing I had to do some serious writing I then I studied screenwriting I must have written a dozen screenplays or more I read I was working in a film company in LA um, flying back and forth to Boston and I must have read a thousand scripts and that really taught me structure mm-hmm. um, really how to create story. So that was extremely helpful. Then I went back to writing books. Then I got published and then I self-published three books and I got published first with uh, Seven and Schuster in 2017. But I do not have a poet's background, but I have a, um, I do, I do, I feel in order to give the reader the experience that I want them to experience, I have to really dig deep into all the senses 
um, keep the story moving, but um, dig deep into having them experience, you know, feel the Arctic, feel the cold, feel the isolation, understand what that is like, and then also um, bring in all the, 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 the human elements and the reflections uh, of the that the character makes. I, yeah, I mean, I just, that, see, that's the part, I guess that is true. I mean, the, and, and I guess your basic thriller, the sentences seem to be quite short and sort of staccato and not as, uh, I don't know, illustrative as, as I would like, as I would, you know, prefer. So I sort of, I sort of see what you're saying. Why, why do you, you said that you, um, you're, you might not be as, um, what did you say? I think I wrote it down. You said you're supposed to be writing a thriller and, and is it enough of a thriller for your agent, editor, um, et cetera, readers? I mean, what, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? Well, so, I mean, if I am, I mean, I'm right, I'm reading a bunch of thrillers now, um, very, you know, right hot off the press. And as you said, they're very plot driven, kind of light on the character, heavy on getting the story going right away and inserting sort of a danger. But how do you how do you have your reader feel danger until the reader starts to really identify with the protagonist mm -hmm. and empathize with the protagonist and project themselves into the protagonist? Uh, I mean. You can have 10 readers read the same book, you know, seven can love it to, to death and three will hate it. And quite possibly the three that hate it just never cared about the main, never cared about the journey, never cared about the main character for whatever reason. Um, so, I think there's a lot of pressure on writers today to, you know, you have all these classes on first page, first chapter, grab them, suck them in, you know? I mean, it's like, whoa, slow down. Uh, I'm not saying, you know, write 20 pages of backstory to start your novel, but your reader will, by most readers will give it 20 pages. And um, by that time they should be feeling it be feeling it, be relating to this character or characters enough that they want to go on a 300 page journey with you. That's a lot to ask of someone. I mean, I feel, you know, beyond paying for the book, the most generous thing a reader does is read it. Right. You know, that's, we are only alive so long, man, you know. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I just, I have dents in my wall from all the books I've thrown at it that are horrible and like I, I can't believe I was you know and I don't finish <laughs> books anymore I used to books I didn't like and now I'm like no there's more I, I'm not spending my life on this yeah I yeah. just don't have time um not saying thrillers are bad at all I mean I just I read one uh which was um The Push by uh Ashley Audrain have you read that I haven't oh my god so just a great, great thriller. It's kind of the whole, um, you know, evil child trope, you know, uh, bad seed thing going on. Mm -hmm. And uh, but up, very updated, set, set in New York City. And, um, you know, it's doing fabulously well and it should, but it's something about the way she writes it. It's, you really, really relate to it. And I think a lot of it is, just brilliant stuff she writes about parenthood and about having a baby and the reality of having children versus the sugar coating we often see or hear. Do you know what I mean? And so right away you're relating you're relating to the story. Even if you're not a mother, you relate you you know enough if you've been alive and if you've been alive long enough, like you you you're right away into it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I have lots of patience if, if, if a book wants to just, you know, give me a little, something a little deeper about the characters. I mean, there are ways of keeping your reader on track if you, you know, keep 
you know, keep it moving without it turning into some sort of staccato, you know, gunshot of a book, you know, like, and then he ran and then he saw and she was scared and so on. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I do. I do. Um, well, this would be a great time to hear you read from Girl and Ice. How about sure. it? Okay. Okay. Thank you, Barbara. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to read this um, very short passage. The whole thing is a page. You'll hear me turning pages, but don't be scared. I'm not going to read that long. <laughs> and I think nothing worse than a reader like droning. I mean, a writer just droning on and on. But um, so the part I'm going to read, I'll set it up really quick, is um, in this remote climate research center, there is uh, another person there, her name is Jean. She's an older woman. She's kind of the grunt. She's the mechanic. She's the cook. And she witnessed um, this girl thawing out and this girl thawing out alive. And she's relating what it was like to Val, the linguist, exactly what it was like to see to see, to witness this. And also, uh, and just quickly, Jean um, has, there's a lot of people dealing with grief in this movie. She, in this movie, I'm already, I'm already thinking of it as a movie. I hope that's a good sign. Uh, <laughs> because um, she lost her husband and daughter in a car crash and she'll relate to that in this. Okay, so here, here goes. Okay. okay. Her skin was so cold but not hard anymore. It was softening by the minute, but we had to give her time because, you know, things thaw from the outside in. So we were patient, but soon we checked for breathing or a pulse. And of course there was nothing. So I was getting nervous. I couldn't believe we were disrespecting a body like this, a body that had been at peace in the ice. What were we going to do now? If she was dead and it sure looked like it, how would we bury her in the frozen ground? Then her left hand twitched under the blanket. We both yelped and jumped back. After a while, I thought we both imagined it, but then her jaw dropped and her mouth opened and closed. So we checked for a heartbeat, nothing. So boom, right away, Wyatt was on her with a defibrillator. Just about bounced her off the table, she's so small, but he did it again and nothing, she wasn't breathing. Her eyes still glazed over, both her hands still, like what we'd seen was just some side effect of a body thawing. And I begged him to stop, but he wouldn't. I begged him in Francis's honor, Francis was my daughter, to stop. I said, Wyatt, maybe this is some rigor mortis thing setting in, just leave her be. Must have been the 10th try, something changed. You could feel it in the room. This crackling energy filled it up. Wyatt was looking down at her, smiling. From where I sat, I saw her hand shoot up, sort of smack his arm. I screamed and jumped, ran over. The girl was coughing and gagging, threw up all over the floor, but she was breathing, she was breathing. Wyatt, I mean, he was spattered with puke, but he had this look of rapture, like he was in his own sort of church. Standing next to him like that, watching her try to catch her breath, this little filthy naked child, hair in knots, I felt like in a weird way, we were her parents or her second set of parents. You know what I'm saying, saying? I mean, he started her little heart, but we worked together to bring her out of the ice, to bring her alive. Think about that. Hmm. Nice. I thank like you. how you read too. Oh, yeah. thank you. Really pleasant. I am curious about the first person past tense. I can't imagine it being in any other voice. How did you come up with um, with that? Is that your 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 go to when you're when you're writing fiction? The first person, or was it just for this story? It needed to be in Val's voice. Um, well, I mean, I I needed it to be in her in her voice. I had an idea of switching it up a little bit, having, you know, Jean, have Jean having Jean's mm -hmm. voice, mm -hmm. perhaps Wyatt's. But you know what? I I I think I might be lazy because <laughs> <laughs> I was like, 
that's really hard. I think I'll just stand in, in the voice of, of Val. Um, this is so River at Night and Into the Jungle are all first person narr narrators. Um, Into the Jungle person is, I think, much different than from the others. She's this 27 year old woman looking back at her sort of her her time in the Bolivian jungle. And um, the river at night was also in first person. It, it, um, yeah, so first person, it does seem to be my go-to. I'm working with that in my fourth book as well. Um, it's so interesting though, I, I wrote a couple of books that didn't get published were, that were in um, omniscient, you know, close omniscient or whatever that is, you know. And I, I didn't feel as, so something about being in the first person that I feel like can really, really get close to the action um, somehow. Past tense, yeah, always past tense. Perhaps it's fashionable now to be in present tense. Um, is, that, is that a thing right now? You know, I have been receiving a lot of um, novels from publicists, especially domestic thrillers. Yeah. And so many of them are in the present tense. And it, for the most part, it makes me a little crazy. And I used to love the <laughs> present tense so much, you know, and I still do in certain, in, with certain books. I mean, Presumed Innocent is, I think, first person present really? tense. And, in, and it's one of my all time favorites. But I don't know. Lately, it kind of drives me a little crazy, maybe because there's too much. Um, and I don't want to be in the shoes. You know, often uh, I don't want to be directly in the narrator's shoes. I like that little bit of remove uh, that past tense gives you. But I do love first person. And but it's well, like, that's so interesting because I never thought of being in past tense as giving giving, you know, among its other benefits, also giving a bit of a remove. Um, but of well, course, because it it's past, it you know, yeah. it happened. It's not it happening. Happened. It's, um, <laughs> yeah, no, this whole, this whole way of writing the present tense, is this breathless sort of like, it's happening right now. I find it exhausting and, um, unnecessary. And for the most part, uh, I don't know. I think it's, if you write something in the past, in, in the past tense, it almost forces you to think forward into the story more mm -hmm. as the writer. Um, that's maybe just true for me. I mean, I, re I really don't know. Uh, but writing first person past is has been working for me. Um, although I certainly do maybe book five, I might just switch it up and do um, omniscient. But I'm always going to stay in the past. I don't feel comfortable um, writing, writing in present tense. Yeah. It's, it's too jarring. Um, it's too jarring. Um, you know, I'll probably write totally right. <laughs> totally do in the present tense and be like, Oh, this is awesome. Why was I saying that? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I just, it um, works for short stories, you know, when you're, yeah. when you're going to spend a little bit of time, it works just as, I mean, there's certain things that work, I think with short fiction that if, when you, when you kind of stretch it out and make it like long form. Is it what you want to do? I don't know. Right, right. Well, I mean, it's so funny to, and also if you're talking about, you know, first, second person. So the push by Ashley O'Train, and I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm right about this, is written in second person. Because mm -hmm. she is writing to, I believe her husband. And now what's brilliant about it is that you forget that it's in second person because it's, uh, Maybe not the whole thing is in second person, but a great deal of it is. It's just so well done. It's not annoying. You know, it's, uh, uh, if you have the skill to do whatever, do whatever, whatever works in this world, right? In this crazy whatever world works. of writing books. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Venda Levita has a novel in the second person. I always forget the title because it's a really long title, like The Divers something. The Divers, okay. I don't know. I don't know what the entire title is, but at first I was reluctant uh, because it was in the second person. And I have read a couple of books, mostly memoir, I think in the second person, but um, that, that work well, but I was. Yeah. Memoir. Reluctant. Interesting. Right. Mm. And then I got into it and, and, uh, and I couldn't see it any other way. And, and she did it so expertly. 
yeah. So I'm going to have to yeah. check out the push. Yeah, check out the push. Well, you know, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about is, um, well, a few things you mentioned, <laughs> you mentioned <laughs> beginnings, like the obsession with beginnings. And, and so I do want to talk about your beginning because it, uh oh, <laughs> no, no, the first page, I mean, because I, I'm an impatient reader. And, okay. you know, you say readers will stay with you for 20 pages, I probably won't. Um, okay. Because you know, I'm like always looking at books, you know, who, who do I want to talk to on the show and all of that. Yeah. So I'm very impatient when books come in that I have not asked for. And so this one I did ask for because I saw you on another panel and now I can't remember where I saw you, but you were with a couple of other writers mm -hmm. it was maybe six weeks ago. And um, I was really intrigued by your book and um, oh, what you were saying you. about your book. And so I requested it. And then the first page, I, I'm like, okay, you know, I'm kind of like, oh, I got to look at the first page. I hope I like it. And then I, of course I did. And I wondered, I wondered how much attention you gave to this first page and this first chapter of yours, like how, how important is it to you? Um, it's, yeah. I mean, it's super important. I mean, I must have rewritten it 20 times. Um, you know, and, and my editor, <laughs> she like lost a little bit of, I think I had buried that, you know, it's, it, there's that email from Wyatt in there. I may have buried that in, in, that, in the next chapter. Um, she said, well, you, you need more, we need a punchy like first paragraph and first line. And it has to be really kind of, you know, give us an image. And I, and I was like, that's so cheesy. You know, that's just so I'm above all that. And then I was like, all right, I'll write like something that, you know, kind of shocking. And the first, can I read it? And so, yeah. I'll read, so, so then I sent this paragraph to her and she's like, I love it. And then the next day I was like, I love it too. You know, so read, read the uh, entire first page. The entire first page. All right, I will do that. Well, I'll read into page two where um, the, the paragraph ends. How's that? Yeah, that'd All be right. great. Okay, so chapter one. Oh, I haven't read this in a while. Okay. Seeing the name Wyatt Speaks in my inbox hit me like a physical blow. Everything rushed back. The devastating phone call, the disbelief, the image of my brother's frozen body in the Arctic wasteland. I shut my laptop, pasted a weak smile on my face. There would be no bursting into tears at school. Grief was for after hours, for the nightly bottle of Merlot, for my dark apartment, for waking on the couch at dawn, the blue light of the TV caressing my aching flesh. No, at the moment, my job was to focus on the fresh, eager face of my graduate student as she petitioned for a semester in Tibet, a project in a tiny village deep in the Himalayas accessible only via treacherous mountain passes on foot and maybe llama, all to discover, all to decipher a newly discovered language. As I listened to her, her I'm sorry, as I listened to her impassioned plea, trying to harness my racing heart, an old shame suffused me. The truth was I'd never embarked into the field, any place more frightening than the local graveyard to suss out a bit of old English carved into a crumbling stone marker. And even then I made sure to go in broad daylight because dead people, even underground, frightened me too. Never had my curiosity about a place, a language and its people overridden my just say no reflex. Citing schedule conflicts, I, I declined a plum semester long gig in the Andean mountains of Peru to study kipu or talking knots cotton strings of differing, differing lengths tied to a cord carried from village to village by runners, each variation in string signaling municipal facts, taxes paid or owed, births and deaths, notices of famine, drought, crop failure, plague, and so on. I'd even passed on the once in a lifetime chance to deconstruct a language carved into the 2000 year old Longyu caves in Kuzo, China. Why? Anxiety, the crippling kind.
Yeah, that's a great beginning. Thank you. Talk um, about that. <laughs> I mean, how, how much did you, how did you work on it? And did it come, was this the, always the beginning? And, and um, let's see, you know, good question. Um, so the, the paragraph, again, uh, that I spoke of, that was, what did I do? I think I started off um, just talking way too much about the student, you know, and I had this whole long conversation with the student, which is ridiculous. You know, it was not about the student. Um, and in a way too much about the student, I had frankly way too much about languages. I mean, I, I love, I love languages. I'm not a linguist, but, um, I needed to get to the point, right? I needed to get to, let's call it the inciting incident really is that as that email, uh, which, which is the thing that forces or, but that, um, you know, destroys her little world and forces her to make a decision that she doesn't want to make. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that I buried that somewhere. Um, and, and I needed to really sort of show how sort of dependent she was on alcohol and how small her world was. Um, I, need to, I needed to pack a lot in there. So I think the original, okay, so it's only seven pages long, chapter one, mm-hmm. but um, I think it was originally 20, 25 pages and it was just way too much about language and I just got lost in that. And um, But, you know, as much as I'm a plotter and I plan things, you know, my, my, um, my outlines are over a hundred pages long. Oh, so you write outlines before you even write the book. Oh yeah. I mean, I spent... Um, at least four months writing an outline. Hmm. And what I'm, I'm using the term loosely, what Erica means by outline is a very uh, detailed, it's almost the book, but it's in my own, like my own language and my own I, way of doing it. I guess maybe Scrivener. I'm my own Scrivener. You know what I mean? Do you create- use Scrivener? Do no, I don't. I don't. I, I make my own, like I have documents that have character, documents that have scraps of dialogue, uh, outtakes, uh, notes. Uh, but then I have this main document where uh, I know I need to create, well, I like to create you know, a three-act structure with inciting incident, rising action, conflict resolution. Well, you know, um, I need to work all that out before I start to write the book. What about the midpoint? Oh yeah, the midpoint. That's a bitch right there, right? That's like, <laughs> you know, keep your reader, but uh, you got some pages to fill. So you have to continue the action and have bunches of turning points and everything has to make sense and without plot holes. And, you know, yeah, it's this, you're, you're trying to lift up this, you know, hold up this like massive big blobby thing, you know, um, at the midpoint, but, uh, so I guess I find it much easier, easier, uh, more effective to work all that out first before I write a word of the book, one word of the book. Hmm. Um, I don't know how to have something happen on page 258 that needs to be set up on page 24. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, back to you know the fact that we don't live 500 years I don't have time to write rewrite a book 20 times you know yeah um and or interest in doing that I think that um I think when as as a younger person I had I thought I had time to do stuff like that um but I didn't know any other way so I think from yeah go ahead Well, I was going to say you do pack an awful lot in those first couple of pages. And I was noticing this time, um, hearing you read and following along that you even get you get in some of the mood of what she's going to be going to with that blue light of the TV. You know, you know, the blue and um, and and that sort of light. um, I don't know when 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 she's in the Arctic, she, there's that light, right? I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. 
It's like that. And I don't know if you meant to do that, but things, you know, a few things like that are, are in the first chapter, I think, and, and especially on the first couple of pages that really kind of give you the mood and, and shouldn't it do that anyway? I mean, shouldn't you know kind of where you're going, even by the right, first you need to know where you're going and you need to know, like, I mean, as I was writing it, I was like, this woman's really frustrated at herself. She's angry at herself. She's unsatisfied with her life right now. And, you know, we need to tell the outer story with all the, you know, the, the polar bears and the, and the ice things, but the inner story is, is just as important. Yeah. Um, maybe more important. Um, maybe more important. Huh? Yeah. Um, so what is she going through and how, how can I convey that ASAP, right? She's, she's been handed these plum opportunities to go all over the world, but she can't do it, you know? And, and she is interviewing this student and, is, you know, who's going to go to do all these brave things. And, and um, you know, after she does that and the, and the student leaves, she's like, I'm a total phony, <laughs> you know? And then she gets this email, you know, basically giving her the assignment of her life. Um, but she's terrified. I mean, even if you didn't have an anxiety disorder, wouldn't you be terrified? <laughs> like, you know? Well, you know, talk about, uh, you know, a little bit about um, the research here, because, you know, you said you, you traveled to Greenland and, and you have spent time up there and some of these scenes, um, especially when they're stuck in the snow and it, um, Man, I mean, I did, or when Nora and uh, Raj are diving uh, yeah. through ice. I mean, talk about that. Talk about getting all that down because it felt pretty authentic to me. <laughs> well, so you know, people ask me, uh, "Why do you, why do you do it? You know, why do you bother to go?" And you know, listen, I'm no martyr. I love this what could be better? What could be more fun, you know, and interesting. But then the, I think the deeper question is why bother, you know, just go on Google and, and, and all that stuff. And, mm -hmm. um, but like, think about New York city. I mean, I can Google New York city and see all the, see all about it, but how is that different from standing, you know, in Times Square and smelling the calves and the food and looking up and, feeling people swarming. I mean, just think of the difference. That's what it's like, you know, to read about the Arctic and then to go there and to just be this, this speck in this, in this white and blue and gray uh, vastness. And it's terrifying. And really awe-inspiring and also it gave me an ability to really convey what it was like on the page you know I I, I, I didn't do any writing there people asked did you write the book and no <laughs> I was busy like how are we going to survive this kayak trip because there's these you know 20 story icebergs that are going to break at any moment um no so I, I, um, but I bring, I bring on all my trips um, for, for into the jungle. And when I went to the Peruvian Amazon for a month, I had, I, I bring a digital recorder and I speak into it constantly. Um, just all my impressions, sense impressions um, and so on. And I was able to, on this trip, um, I was able to interview some, some Greenlandic folks talked to them about their lives. I met the mayor of this little town. And when I say little, I mean, hundred people, maybe 121 people in this one town and um, just about his life. And I mean, Greenland is a third the size of Canada. The ice sheet is 1500 miles north to south, 900 miles east to west. And only 56,000 people live there. Hmm. Think about that. And most of them live in Nuuk, which is the capital. Most the rest live in tiny, tiny, tiny little village and along the coast. No one lives inland, nothing lives inland. 
because there's no game inland. And this is a hunting and subsistence culture. And it is one thing to read about that once again, and another thing to witness mm-hmm. um, people hunting seal, people, you know, pulling in a pilot whale and cutting it up for their dogs, their sled dogs, because dog food is $7 a can and nobody makes that kind of money there. And, um, you know, so I felt that going to, you know, the good thing about going to, to Greenland, I did it after I wrote the first draft. Um, and luckily nothing about my trip changed the story in any real way. So that was really good. Hmm. <laughs> but um, it, it did serve to validate some ideas I had and also strengthen, as I've been saying, you know, this is a sense impressions of, a, of the place. Um, and really get the sense of dread. And that's where I came up with the concept of the enormity because um, I, mean, I should say that, that Val is the, the linguist who is troubled with her anxiety uh, equates this vast you know, wasteland of ice with her own anxiety and she calls it the enormity and she can barely look at it. Um, so, Hmm. So, but, yeah, go ahead. So how did you not have to change anything after you went to Greenland? I mean, did you do a lot of research as you were writing or before you started writing when you were doing your outline? Because I'm thinking, you know, where they live, you. you know, where they live, you had to know something about that, right? Like, how are they living? What are they living in? <laughs> All right. So um, I wish I could show you my bookshelf, but I have about 35 books on the Arctic. I read every single one, um, you know, both, both stories, both, you know, stories, fiction, nonfiction, accounts, memoirs. Um, and then I watched every documentary I could get my hands on or every movie set in the Arctic. So there are countless hours that go into, well, my process anyway. Um, and from that, I'm trying, uh, I was able to piece together what it is I thought it, the story could be. And so going there was, um, you know, in this case, really just was to um, make everything come alive um, for, for me. You know, I mean, you have to realize that, I mean, you know, you'll remember the story itself. It takes place in the climate research, in a climate research center. It doesn't take place, um, which is a, which is, you know, in a, in a, um, imagine in a, in an, in a, um, on an island that I made up. Um, mm-hmm. I do not, I don't like setting stories in places that exist because then it just, makes people come back to you and say, well, there's no grocery store on the corner of Main Street and State. And I was like, I don't, not interested in that, you know. <laughs> um, but so I, I made up the place and I made up this climate research center. And there are not a, there's not a lot of interactions with Inuit people. So I didn't need to know that much mm-hmm. about, um, about, I needed to know about the culture but not, not as much as if I had major characters who were um, Greenlandic, you know, that I mean, think about it, it's a very small cast. You know, you have Val, he's a linguist, um, you have Wyatt, who's the head researcher, you have the two marine biologists, Nora and Raj, and you have the girl and you have Jean, who is the cook. Mm-hmm. That's basically it. And then you have, you know, the peacock, he's the pilot, but you don't see him. And the father, I mean, Val's father, you have that. Father, yeah. Under 10 people. Um, And I have to say, it's a lot easier to write a book with a small cast. (laughs) For me, (laughs) like, oh, God. (laughs) Even that feels like a lot, but. Hmm. Uh, Well, yeah. Um, uh, There's so much more we could talk about. I, I guess uh, before we go, I also wanted to ask you, you mentioned The Push by Ashley somebody. Oh, Drain, A-U-D-R-A-I-N, I believe. 
What about other influences? Are there other writers that um, have influenced you along the way that um, that you still love, that you remember? Um, oh, let's see. Um, I, I read constantly, so I'm not the best. Uh, but I think there's some sort of, uh, let's see. I love the book. Um, the Woman Upstairs by Claire Massoud, which uh-huh. is a very subtle, a subtle thriller. Um, I love Ian McEwan, especially Enduring Love. Mm-hmm. Um, I love older stuff like Flowers for Algernon. Mm-hmm. What a fantastic book. Um, I read The North Water by Ian McGuire. It's a, it's a fantastic book. Uh, brace yourself. Um, it's basically Moby Dick, but a really accessible Moby Dick. <laughs> like when, you know, you just, and it's just like these scenes of flensing a whale that'll just curl your hair. Uh, what else? I do it recently. I read The Need by Helen Phillips, which I thought was fantastic. Um, I just like the classics, like Lord of the Flies. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Let's see. Lots of different stuff. I have this list here. An older forgotten one, or seems forgotten, A Carnivore's Inquiry by Hmm. Sabina Murphy. Uh, So subtle, so terrifying. Um, I see see Ian McGuire's recent one, Machines Like Me, I thought was great and underrated. I'm reading this book now, Sleepwalk by Dan Chan. Whoa, Hmm. loving it. Spelled C-H-A-O-N. Very different, very, very weird, hard to describe. Um, what about what about um, advice? Maybe in closing, maybe we could close sure. with advice that you received at some point along the way that's that stayed with you, um, or that at um, least had a big influence on you when when it was given. Well, I can give advice that I hope is helpful. Let's let's do that. I think okay. um, for me, um, look, you know, it took me 35 years to publish my first book. Now that and that can that can sound incredibly depressing because you know, or it can be inspiring too. Um, so I would just say persistence, persistence, never ever give up. If this is what you love, but make sure it is what you love because you want to be happy in this world. You know? <laughs> and, and, and writing will take it out of you. It's endlessly time consuming and it's very emotional. At least it is for me. Uh, and it's, it's a bit in this world of everything of, you know, I think a, a horrible word in this world is success like what does that what does that word mean it can be a very damaging word I think we all I mean if I had you know thought of myself as being unsuccessful for all those years that I tried to get a book published I would have stopped you have to redefine that word I'm certainly doing it every day I mean, maybe you get a, maybe you really get uh, good at dialogue or you get some real tips on dialogue one day, or you understand something that you've been doing wrong that you are happy about fixing. And that's very exciting for you. You see the light in some way, or you, you make a deadline on a contest or you place in a contest, or even if you just feel like you finally um, mastered something you're trying to master. I mean, writing is, it's like, I would, I would wager writing a book is as complex as performing surgery or more complex because there are so many things you have to keep track of, you know, pacing and dialogue and point of view and, and, you know, keeping those page turning qualities and character development. And I mean, the fact that anything ever gets written in as good as at all is just amazing to me. <laughs> it's, it's very difficult. Um, so, so I just would say, 
never give up, but also always keep learning because I can't tell you how many times I've been humbled by something I've learned where I realized, you know, frankly, what I wasn't doing very well, you know, and, you know, you have to be honest with yourself about your own writing and, and, and try to achieve the balance of this honesty with holding on to this little burning kernel of, you know, of belief in yourself that got you in all this trouble in the first place. You know, this, this uh, kryptonite hard belief in yourself that you've got something to offer to readers. And if you lose that, that's, that's just not what you wanna do. So you need, I mean, I just think the best thing is to balance. I do it every day. I mean, I'm like, oh my God, what a crappy chapter I wrote today. <laughs> I should just die. Oh no, I won't <laughs> die. I'll just go back at it tomorrow and maybe tomorrow will be better. And, you know, I'm halfway through my next book and I'm like, and even though I wrote the, the um, outline, I'm like, oh my God, this is way not feeling right. You know, um, you know I'm, in the anal- I'm, I'm, I'm in the stage where I'm trying to analyze what's wrong with the body. <laughs> Why is it ill? <laughs> what are the symptoms how is it presenting it's ill you know and I need to figure out why you know when I was so you know cocksure early on the process that I had this one down yeah you know and once again another humbling event you know so and I and it and it and the world does go you and you know after you're published you know this be it this it doesn't end then you have to deal with reviews and you have to deal with um publicity and and all so it's really important to hold on to the basics of what you love about writing in the first place otherwise you know there's just ways to get washed away there are ways Mm -hmm. to get washed away Mm -hmm. and balance is important get outside use your physical body um be with other people um, do crazy shit. That's how you get material. <laughs> <laughs> Go to the party, you know, have a great time. It's like, you know, live your life. That's, yeah, that's, life. that's the material of story, right? Right. It's been so great talking with you. I really, really appreciate you taking the time. This has yeah. been a great hour for me. Yeah, me too. It's been wonderful. Thank you so, so much. Thank you, Erica. That was Erica Forensic. Her novel is Girl and Ice, published by Scout Press, an imprint of Simon & Schuster. And if you made it this far, you're lucky. We're doing a little drawing. If you would like Erica's book, email me at penonfire at earthlink.net and tell me what you heard on the show that made some sort of impression. Also, if you like the music, the typewriter music that Travis Barrett has created, You can hear an album's worth of music by going to Spotify and looking up Just My Type. There you will see it, we'll be able to download it and listen to it. And it, let me tell you, it helped me get into the flow and helps me every time I listen. In any case, I am Barbara DeMarco Barrett and I appreciate uh, you listening, being with me this long today. And, uh, Come back next Monday, or at least check your podcast file next Monday, and uh, there should be another one. 